The shock of the pandemic and the accompanying economic and social catastrophe impelled a dramatic paradigm shift for hundreds of millions of people, and this has important implications for the future. It's gradually dawning on tens of millions of Americans that this all isn't an aberration. It isn't a temporary, conjunctural crisis. It is a systemic, organic, and terminal crisis. That America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is John Peterson. I'm the editor-in-chief of Socialist Revolution Magazine. Every episode, we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective, featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. Now, the U.S. section of the IMT recently held its National Congress in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It really was such a joy to be among so many comrades in person. The organization has come so far over the last 20 or so years, and especially over the last two years. There were so many familiar faces present, and more importantly, even more new faces from dozens of different parts of the country. As part of the discussions over that amazing and inspiring weekend, I gave a lead-off on U.S. perspectives which we thought might be of interest to listeners of our podcast. I definitely encourage you to visit socialistrevolution.org to check out the U.S. perspectives document that was discussed, amended, and approved by the Congress, as well as a report with lots of pictures on the event as a whole. So here are some of the points I raised during my lead-off, adapted to this format and updated somewhat based on the rapidly changing situation. First of all, what is the purpose of perspectives and of such a document and discussion in particular? Above all, it's to recap what has happened in the recent period and on that basis to anticipate what is most likely to come in the next period. The last few years have been particularly exceptional and deserve a thorough balance sheet. Our aim is to identify the fundamental processes that are shaping the class struggle in the period we're passing through so as to tailor our increasingly concrete intervention in those processes. As a part of this, we need to continually track the changing consciousness of the U.S. working class, which is not a linear process. We need a scientific, dialectical approach, not an impressionistic one, which is why we opened the U.S. Perspectives document with a wonderful quote from Hegel. Marxist theory is an indispensable guide to action in a world that is particularly convoluted due to the belated nature of the world revolution in the absence of the revolutionary subjective factor or even a mass reformist point of reference in a place like the United States. Needless to say, perspectives are conditional by their very nature. We don't have a crystal ball after all. So we shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes as we can correct and learn from them if we have a sense of proportion and humility. But neither should we just throw possible outcomes out there like spaghetti noodles at a wall, waiting to see what sticks and what doesn't. Because from our perspectives flow our overall strategy, our tactical priorities, our programmatic demands. And we have limited energy and resources, and we need to carefully prioritize. So the U.S. Perspectives document is not just a discussion document, but it's also a recruitment tool for the IMT, which allows us to actively turn outward with our political analysis to win hundreds and eventually thousands of new people to our ideas, our program, and our organization. Because we aren't just armchair analysts, we use our political understanding to build a real-world organization with growing roots in the working class. And as conditions change and as our forces and influence grow, our perspectives will necessarily become more and more concrete and have an ever greater bearing on our day-to-day work. From being mainly spectators commenting on the sidelines, trying to find ways to connect with the working class and its many struggles, we will increasingly become active participants, able to actually shape events in small ways. We won't just participate in protests, strikes, campaigns, and mass movements, but we'll also help to organize, and in some cases, we'll even initiate and lead them. 
Ultimately, our aim is to play a decisive role in shaping world history in facilitating the working class's seizure of political and economic power. In short, we aim to become the revolutionary subjective factor. We should also bear in mind that any discussion on perspectives or any discussion on a document like U.S. Perspectives has to build on previous discussions and previous documents, all of which you can find on our website. So at any given juncture, a Perspectives document uh, has to focus on the main lines of development and can't possibly include everything. So we need a sense of proportion and should be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. I would even say you, you need to develop a certain feel for things. It's not just about facts and figures, as important as they are. The conclusions always have to flow from the facts, but not all facts are important at the same time. That feel is something that accumulates in individuals and in organizations over time with experience. These days especially, there's an overabundance of raw information out there and dozens of important issues and struggles. So we have to synthesize all that information, separate what is essential from the noise, understanding that just because something isn't in this or that document at a given time doesn't mean it's not important, or that what appears to be a mere outlier or a detail or anecdote today can suddenly take center stage in the future. Marxism is a dynamic method, and we need a dynamic analysis. Developing perspectives and the tasks that flow from them is both a science and an art. So we will continue to change our focus as needed, updating our documents and our perspectives as needed, responding with agility to the changed conditions as we did with the onset of the pandemic and the economic collapse, and of course the explosion of the George Floyd movement. Given the pace of events, we should also bear in mind that a document like this cannot be 100% up to date, at least not for long, as this or that prediction comes true or is falsified by events. Fortunately, we have a steady and growing stream of editorials, articles, podcasts, videos, booklets, and books to keep things up to date, to attend to and expand on important topics as they arise. So what are the main themes we need to wrap our heads around at the present juncture? And how did we get to where we are today? First and foremost, there's a profound crisis of world capitalism as an economic system and of American capitalism in particular. The dysfunction of the capitalist economy is what ultimately underlies the many crises we are living through today, which in turn feed back on it. Capitalism no longer plays a historically progressive role and could and should have been overthrown at least a century ago. The fact that it wasn't overthrown and replaced by a rational system introduces new and unforeseeable contradictions, complications, and dynamics. To give just one pressing example, take the climate catastrophe and what 100 plus more years of capitalism has meant for the planet and its inhabitants. Flowing from the economic crisis, we see the relative decline of U.S. imperialism, which leads to growing instability in world relations. This is something the IMT discussed last summer as part of our World Perspectives discussions at our World Congress. Linked with all of this is the crisis of the regime of capitalist rule, the deep divisions within and between the capitalist parties and institutions, and a profound crisis of confidence. All of this is pushing dramatic changes in consciousness and polarization along many vectors. There is sharp polarization to both the left and the right, but again, we have to have a sense of proportion. The extreme right, and even openly fascist groups are indeed growing, and can be used as a battering ram against the left and parts of the labor movement to attack individuals and small groups. But their overall social weight is minuscule by comparison to the working class as a whole. The rising interest in socialism among tens of millions of Americans dwarfs the rise of the extreme right. The polarization is driven by the inertia of the last few decades, refracted through the existing political parties and institutions, and compounded by the so-called culture wars whipped up by both liberal and conservative defenders of the status quo to divide and confuse. But in the final analysis, this all represents the confused beginnings of intensifying class polarization, which will become increasingly clear in the years ahead as issues that affect all workers come to the forefront, no matter who they voted for in 2008, 2016, or 2020. As we note in the document, 2008 marked a crucial point of inflection in this process. The so-called Great Recession devastated the lives of billions of people globally and gave a mighty impetus to the ripening world revolution. 
In the US, this led, in part, to the election of Obama, who was given a certain honeymoon due to what he had inherited from George W. Bush. But this was eventually followed by a rising tide of class struggle, despite coinciding with the longest boom in US history. There were ebbs and flows, of course, but this period brought us the Wisconsin labor uprising, Occupy, the first wave of Black Lives Matter, the remarkable rise and ignominious fall of Bernie Sanders, and of course, the election of Donald Trump and the emergence of Trumpism. Then in 2020 came the COVID-19 pandemic, the illness, fear, death, economic dislocation, and uncertainty, which put even more stress on the system. This all culminated in the 2020 primaries and general elections spilling into the new year with the events of January 6th. There were also important rumblings in the labor movement during this time, notably the wave of teacher strikes in 2018 and 2019. But most significant from our perspective were the events that followed the callous police murder of George Floyd, which sparked a truly unprecedented mass movement against racism and police terror. This was a movement with insurrectionary elements and offered a sneak peek at the revolutionary future of this country. So there's been a lot going on in the U.S., not to mention the world, and we need to make sure we ground our understanding in the main processes. The pace of history is accelerating, and both our analysis and our organization need to keep up with events. Because what we're really discussing here are the perspectives for the American Socialist Revolution and the role that must be played by the American Bolsheviks. So what exactly do we mean when we say that this is all part of our preparations for the future revolution? Well, a revolutionary situation opens up when the generalized crisis of society leads to intractable divisions at the top, providing openings for the masses to surge forward to try to resolve their problems themselves. The middle layers of society are desperate and lash out in anger. But due to their position in class society, squeezed between the workers and the capitalists, they vacillate, some looking towards reaction and others looking to the left for a solution to the crisis. The workers launch wave after wave of concerted economic and political struggles. Sometimes they're victorious, but more often than not, they're defeated. But the main thing is that they learn from this experience. They learn to recognize their real friends and enemies and increasingly draw the conclusion that they can rely only on their own forces, organizations, and leaders. The consciousness that they are part of a definite class with definite class interests opposed to those of the capitalists grows. Eventually, they recognize the limits of the existing system and they move to smash it, ready to make every sacrifice as they seize their destinies in their hands. All of this is the swirl and chaos of a revolutionary situation. But as we know, the final factor that must be in place to ensure a successful revolution is the presence of the revolutionary subjective factor in the form of the revolutionary party. We're clearly not that far along in this process yet in the United States. But we should emphasize the word yet. We've seen such situations time and again around the world in recent years. How long before events at that scale erupt right here in the belly of the beast? How will the many elements in the complex social, political, and economic equation of this country combine and recombine to accelerate or slow down this process? It's impossible to say for sure, but who can deny that the events of the last two years have moved us a lot closer than we were? 2020 was an unprecedented convergence of interrelated crises. In the absence of a mass workers' party with an unambiguously socialist program, however, the potential to transform that crisis, all those many crises, into the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism wasn't actualized. But the shock of the pandemic and the accompanying economic and social catastrophe impelled a dramatic paradigm shift for hundreds of millions of people, and this has important implications for the future. It's gradually dawning on tens of millions of Americans that this all isn't an aberration. It isn't a temporary, conjunctural crisis. It is a systemic, organic, and terminal crisis. The death agony of the system, as Trotsky put it, will be a long, drawn-out process. Due to the class balance of forces, which is overwhelmingly in favor of the working class, the ruling class cannot simply resort to naked reaction. But due to the lack of revolutionary leadership, the colossus of the working class is unable to quickly reach its full potential. So we have some time to build the forces of Marxism, but not all the time in the world. 
In that context, our recent Congress was a springboard for the next period of the IMT's development, which promises to be even more exciting than the recent past. So with all that in mind, let's look at some of the main themes outlined in the document in a bit more detail. On the question of world relations, suffice it to say that we could spend a whole episode of the podcast just discussing the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan, or the situation in Cuba and the way forward to save the remaining gains of the revolution, or the brewing crisis of Chinese capitalism and its effects on the world economy. There's also U.S. imperialism's pivot to the Pacific, the U.S.-Chinese rivalry, and the rising tensions in the region highlighted by the recent diplomatic spat between the U.S. and France over Australia's nuclear submarines. And of course, there's the question of U.S. relations with Japan, South Korea, North Korea. There's Russia and Putin and the Arctic. And let's not forget the Middle East, from Israel to Saudi Arabia to Iran. Or the vast and complicated Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia. Or the entirety of Africa, an increasingly tense arena of struggle for the main imperialist powers. There's Latin America generally, the worsening crisis in Central America, and the menace of U.S. imperialism against Cuba and Venezuela. I don't have time to go into all of this now, but one thing is clear. Although Biden's public approach is less openly crude than Trump's America first, that basically remains the guiding principle of U.S. imperialism. And how could it be otherwise? Foreign policy is an extension of domestic policy, and politics is concentrated economics. Every major power seeks to shore up and expand their influence on the world stage. Above all, they want to export economic crisis, unemployment, and social unrest to their rivals. Lord Palmerston brilliantly summed up the interests of British imperialism and of all imperialism in 1848 when he said, We have no eternal allies and we have no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual, and those interests it is our duty to follow. Of course, British imperialism and imperialism generally are not eternal and perpetual, But those are obviously the interests of those powers as long as they are allowed to remain on this planet. Another theme we took up in the document was a balance sheet of Donald Trump and of the broader phenomenon of Trumpism, which is alive and well and just waiting in the wings for the inevitable failure of the Democrats. As we've explained many times, it was precisely the repeated failures of the Democrats over decades that gave rise to Trumpism in the first place. The ruling class was offered a way out in the form of Bernie Sanders and his left populism. He could have channeled the growing discontent right into the Democratic Party. But they were so set on maintaining the Clinton-era status quo and so worried that Bernie might not be able to keep control of the working class that they ended up with Trump in 2016 and just barely squeaked out a victory for Biden in 2020. Confidence in the establishment has been waning for decades, especially since 2008. And as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. In the absence of a lead from the labor leaders, and with the left tiny, timid, and disorganized, the vacuum was filled from the right in the form of Donald J. Trump. He's an arch-reactionary, a misogynistic, racist, billionaire asshole. That's true. But he's also a fighter, a risk-taker, a bold and aggressive outsider underdog who gleefully gives the swamp of both parties the middle finger. That's light years away from the attitude of the labor leaders and what passes for the left in this country. As a result, the Democrats can no longer count on a layer of workers they could more or less take for granted in the past. A hefty section of the white working class, both union and non-union, and in particular, those in the Rust Belt and rural areas who feel deeply alienated and abandoned by the liberal capitalists. Trump wasn't supposed to win, and he clearly wasn't Wall Street's preferred candidate. But the so-called deplorables had other ideas, and the undemocratic mechanism of the Electoral College gave him a path to victory. By harnessing the anger of millions of small business owners and workers, Trump gave the Republican another lease on life and has largely refashioned the GOP in his own image. He was very lucky when it came to the economy, and of course he claimed full credit for it. This gave him a lot of credibility among millions of workers who are motivated by crude pragmatism. With the support of media outlets like Fox News, Trump was able to blame the economic crisis on the pandemic and to blame the pandemic on China. He lost the election, but he won more votes than any Republican candidate in history. So despite being out of office and booted from social media, Trump still has an iron grip on the party establishment. 
This won't last forever, of course, but for now, the civil war within the Republican Party is mainly taking place behind the scenes, with some exceptions, like the attacks against Liz Cheney, a representative of the party's old guard. Trump's most rabid base includes the far-right petty bourgeois, fascists, lumpens, conspiracy theorists, and a handful of big bourgeois who stand to benefit directly from his being in power. But most of the ruling class hates him due to his Trump-first policy, which puts their whole system at risk. Not at risk of being overthrown by Trump and his hardcore base, of course. As we've explained, January 6th was by no means an organized insurrection or a Bonapartist coup but they can see the risk of being overthrown by the broader working class as a response to the whip of reaction in the form of Trump and his wretched hive of scum and villainy. That's why the liberals are bending over backwards to use January 6th to hold up the sanctity of American democracy in the abstract, of the Constitution, the Capitol building, the police, the presidency, and so on. They know the whole thing is rotting from the inside and that Hurricane Trump threatens to knock it over. Now, the petty bourgeoisie is demographically and economically small as a proportion of the overall U.S. population, but they are particularly noisy and full of themselves, so they are able to project themselves as much more than they really are. But their instability and erratic behavior should not surprise us. However, this mess has also led to significant divisions in the working class. It's absolutely true that on the current political spectrum, a sizable layer of union workers in particular has shifted further to the right. But as we explain in the U.S. Perspectives document, this is only because there are only right-wing political options available. Many of those workers support Trump for the same reason they supported Obama and the Democrats in the past, because there is no viable class-independent alternative, and he offers hope in a desperate time. So more than a concerted or permanent shift to the right, it represents a lashing out and a search for a way out of the impasse. Again, this is in the context of the total cowardice and impotence of the labor leaders. And all of this is mixed up with the so-called culture wars. Now, big chunks of the ruling class are out to get revenge on Trump and to prevent him from running again in 2024. They already tried impeachment a couple of times, and now they have several major lawsuits against him from different angles. But if he's blocked from running on a mere technicality, like being a convicted felon, or because he's sitting in jail, he could become even more popular, a kind of El Chapo of the American far right. Because despite everything, given the lack of viable alternatives and the dynamics of the two-party system, Trump is in a very good position ahead of the 2024 elections, and he has plenty of sycophants lined up and ready to ride his coattails back to power or to take over his mantle if he's unable to run himself. Take the polls in Iowa as an example. As part of its reliance on the conservatism of rural areas to bolster the continuation of their system, both the liberal and conservative media place undue emphasis on Iowa as a bellwether for American politics. But in that heavily agricultural Midwestern state, 53% approve of Trump, which is even more than when he was president. Among Republicans, he has 91% support, while independents are pretty much split right down the middle. As for Biden, his approval rating stands at just 31% in Iowa, with 62% of adults disapproving of the job he's doing. So never say never to the possibility of Trump 2.0. Everything the liberals and Democrats are doing is paving the way for his triumphant return. And if you thought he was arrogant, disruptive, and polarizing the first time around, just imagine what he'd be like in round two. I'll talk more about Biden and the Democrats in a bit, but we must be absolutely clear. Trumpism versus liberalism is a false dichotomy and must be rejected in favor of a class analysis. Both major parties represent the interests of the capitalists, not the workers. The only way to break Trump's hold on the minds of millions of desperate and confused workers is with a bold and fighting party armed with a program of working class demands. The liberals simply cannot meet the needs of the workers. By the same token, though, in the long run, Trump's right populist demagogy can't solve their problems either. So it may take four more years of the school of Donald Trump once the current school of the Democrats is over to make that clear. And we can be sure that if he gets back into the White House, those would be extremely intense years with even bigger protests and mass movements than we saw last time. Sooner or later, the class issues will come to the fore and both parties will be abandoned in droves and a new mass workers party will emerge in some form. We, the Marxists, the IMT, we don't have the numbers to fill the void, 
That will have to come through mass movements and mass formations, including the unions. But we do have a crucial role in patiently explaining all of this and building a force that can take full advantage of those developments when the time comes. So let's circle back to what's underlying all of this instability, the growing sclerosis of the capitalist economy. Just as the Soviet planned economy was unable to develop indefinitely on the basis of bureaucratic decrees from above, the capitalist system of unplanned private ownership of the means of production cannot meaningfully develop the economy without preparing ever more devastating crises. The nation-state and the market economy are fetters to human development, and the fact that the working class cannot buy back all the commodities it creates leads to periodic crises of overproduction. And although this has been expressed in different ways throughout capitalism's lifespan, it is all hardwired into its DNA. The current setup is totally unsustainable. The only way the capitalists can solve the crisis of their system is by abolishing it altogether, but they're obviously not about to do that. So it's up to the working class gravediggers of capitalism and the Bolsheviks to do that for it. Now, not all the capitalists are entirely stupid, at least when it comes to making money, and they never let a good crisis go to waste. So wealth inequality has risen to even more ridiculous levels since the onset of the pandemic. We've all seen the statistics. We know that the billionaires added $1 trillion to their wealth in 2020 alone, that Amazon's shares rose by 87% in 15 months, and that Jeff Bezos is the first person to be quote-unquote worth $200 billion, although I think since then uh, Elon Musk has surpassed him. And all of this has happened while essential frontline workers died trying to make ends meet and keeping the economy afloat. But the income inequality is even worse, actually, than most Americans think. According to a recent study, Americans believe that the richest 20% of Americans own about 60% of the wealth, but that ideally, they should only own about 30% of the wealth. In reality, the richest 20% own more than 80% of the wealth. That's a far cry from the 30% that they think they should own. As for the poor, Americans estimated that the poorest 20% owned about 4% of the wealth and should have about 10%. In reality, the poorest 20% have just 0.1%. So there's a serious disconnect here, and when consciousness catches up with reality, it's going to be a real jolt. And what about debt? U.S. household debt climbed to a record $15 trillion in the second quarter of this year as mortgage debt alone climbed to $10.4 billion amid a refinancing and housing boom. Student loan debt has surged by over 350% in the last 18 years and now stands at $1.8 trillion. Americans owe over a trillion dollars on their credit cards. These are astronomical sums that can never be paid back. They represent a lifetime of de facto indentured servitude to the banks and other lenders. As for the federal debt, it now stands at nearly $29 trillion, the equivalent of $65,000 per American citizen. That's a debt-to-GDP ratio of nearly 126%. That's higher than in countries like Brazil, Pakistan, Mexico, India. To put it in the context, in 1980, at the height of the Cold War, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio was around 35%. Now it's 126%. These are serious and unsustainable imbalances. Only the country's sheer size and economic inertia are keeping it moving forward. But just like when you're riding a bicycle, if you stop pedaling and moving forward, or if you have to go up a steep hill and your legs start to give out, the whole thing can flop over from one moment to the next and lead to serious injury. Of course, for a while there, it seemed everything would get back to something approximating the pre-pandemic normal relatively quickly. Vaccination rates took off, and millions of people had extra cash and savings due to the stimulus checks and changes in spending habits during the pandemic. But the Delta variant and widespread vaccine hesitancy upended that apple cart, so the end of the pandemic is still quite a ways off. As we all know, unemployment levels skyrocketed during the pandemic, and they've since gone back to more quote-unquote normal levels. But there are still 5 million fewer jobs than before all of this started. Unemployment benefits during the first waves of the pandemic were relatively robust by U.S. standards. They knew that they couldn't have zero safety net for tens of millions of people losing their jobs overnight, or there would be mass unrest. Of course, what they did receive was still far from what was really needed, but it did give workers a taste of what it's like to earn more money for the same amount of work, or even for no work. 
Some companies did offer wage increases, but many of them made them temporary. Now all that's being taken away and is a point of friction between employers, workers, and prospective workers. The extended unemployment benefits have ended now for millions, but many people are unwilling to settle for a return to the poverty wages of the past. Now often during an economic crisis, workers are desperate to take anything offered just to get back to work after being laid off. But as Michelle Meyer, an economist at Bank of America, put it, the psychology of this downturn was different. This is the basis of the so-called labor shortage. In an unorganized yet instinctive way, millions of workers are using the little bit of leverage they have to try to get a little bit bigger piece of the pie. But just imagine the effect a concerted campaign by the unions to collectively harness all of this potential to push wages higher, far beyond the feeble demand for $15 an hour embraced by the reformists and even many capitalists. I mean, even Bank of America is now offering a minimum wage of $21 an hour. As for the stock market, there continue to be erratic ups and downs, with billions of dollars seeming to magically appear or disappear overnight based on events or the mood of the big investors. And if anyone doubts that Biden is Wall Street's president, you can point out that the major stock indices have risen faster during his first few months in office than they did when Trump inherited the boom that eventually became the longest economic upswing in U.S. history. The Dow Jones rose roughly 10,000 points in the four years between Trump's election and Biden's election. But in just the first few months of Biden's term, it rose by over 6,000 points. Again, this is unsustainable, and although there is a relation, there is a serious disconnect with the real economy. And that brings us to the question of inflation. Since the economic meltdown of 2008, low interest rates, multiple massive corporate bailouts, and quantitative easing, which is a euphemism for printing money, led to a huge bubble on the stock market in the form of rising asset prices. Companies took all that free or cheap money and they used it to buy stocks, often their own stocks, to drive up the prices. They didn't use that money to create jobs or to invest in new productive capacity. But inflation for consumer goods was generally fairly tame, and the Fed was able to keep interest rates essentially at zero. Over the last couple of years, however, trillions more dollars have been conjured up and pumped into the economy. And although most of it again went to big business, billions were sent directly to ordinary people, the so-called consumers, and they have been pouring much of that money directly into the broader economy. All of these dollars, combined with severe shortages due to the pandemic and major snarls in the global supply chain, have put inflationary pressure on prices. Although it's somewhat more complicated than this, basically, more dollars are chasing fewer goods, and the basic laws of supply and demand have led to price rises for the goods and services tens of millions of ordinary workers depend on. Inflation has risen by about 5% over the last year, and that's a real cut in wages since prices for basic goods are rising faster than the money people get paid for doing their jobs. It's certainly nothing on the scale of Germany during the Weimar Republic or places like Venezuela today, but in the context of the US, where workers have gotten used to very gradual inflation over decades, even 5% inflation compounded year after year can quickly eviscerate purchasing power and lead to instability. The far right is already making this a major talking point in their stumping for Trump's re-election. We should also remember that the official figures are often distorted by excluding food and energy costs, precisely the expenses that most affect the working class. By any measure, inflation is well above the Fed's target of 2% or lower. Energy prices worldwide are skyrocketing. The price of natural gas, which is how half of Americans heat their homes, has risen 180% over the last 12 months. A meteorological accident like an early or an extra cold winter could lead to serious problems and literally to death by freezing for tens of thousands of people who can't afford to keep the heat on. The U.S. happens to be the world's leading producer of natural gas, so it's slightly more cushioned than Europe or Asia, but in a world market, the ebb and flow of prices doesn't respect borders. Exports from the U.S. of natural gas are up 48% as producers chase profits, not the needs of those who depend on gas to heat their homes during the increasingly erratic winters. Oil has been headed towards $90 a barrel, and some people think it could spike as high as $100 or even $200. Remember, back in April 2020, oil was at negative $40 a barrel. Gasoline prices are already up a dollar or more a gallon compared to a year ago, and as for the cost of childcare, 
It is doubled and has gotten even harder to find if you can afford it. It's uneven, of course, and while things like meat and eggs have risen by double digits over the last year, things like airline tickets have fallen again due to the Delta variant. And some workers have gotten somewhat better wage increases. But overall, this doesn't keep pace with inflation and in turn adds more inflationary pressure to the system. Housing inventory remains low and prices high. The median home price in August was up 14.9%, marking 114 straight months of year-on-year gains in home prices. Auto prices for both new and used cars also remain extremely high, driven by a global shortage of microchips, along with shortages in resin, steel, paint, and labor. This has led to temporary shutdowns in production, further exacerbating all these problems. It's now estimated that on a worldwide basis, 7.7 million fewer vehicles will be built than would have been built if automakers could get all the parts and raw materials they needed. Due to just-in-time production, which are methods developed to minimize stocks on hand so as to maximize efficiency and profitability, there are no real shock absorbers built into the system of production and distribution. So ironically, in the midst of a crisis of overcapacity, which is overproduction of the means of production, there is currently a crisis of underproduction in many industries due to the overall inefficiencies of an irrational system based on profit that simply can't coordinate all the moving parts. In response to the threat of inflation, the Fed has said it may wind down stimulus measures such as bond buying and may even raise interest rates ever so slightly. But the weak job market, the sheer size of the economy, international factors, and lack of an overall plan makes capitalist monetary policy a moving target, not at all a precise science. To be sure, rising inflation can make it easier for institutional and private debtors to pay off their debts. But let's not forget that the complex webs of debt and inflation have spurred revolutionary uprisings many times in the past, going all the way back to the ancient world. Rising inflation and mountains of debt are just not a recipe for social stability. Weighing on all of this is the absurdity of capitalist politics showing just how precarious the whole setup is. It shows how thin the crust of social peace is with a massive volcano churning just beneath the surface. The capitalists and their economists have more tricks than a monkey in a box, but they aren't omniscient and they certainly aren't omnipotent. Eventually, even the biggest debtors have to pay up. And under capitalism, the burden will always be put on the backs of the workers, whether in the form of austerity, inflation, or something else. But the workers won't take these attacks laying down forever, and it will lead to a labor fight back. In fact, we're starting to see that now, which we'll talk about in a bit. The reality is that the bourgeois economists are making up a lot of this as they go along. They're in totally uncharted waters for world capitalism. So from UBI to quantitative easing to cryptocurrencies, they're always looking for ways to square the circle of their inherently dysfunctional system. Lately, some people have even called for Janet Yellen to mint a trillion dollar platinum coin to pay off the debt. It's not really a serious proposal, and it has no basis in materialist understanding of economics, but it is legally possible. And then there's Mr. Gox. Mr. Gox is a German hamster that's been running an independent portfolio that trades a basket of cryptocurrencies from a high-tech cage called the Gox Box. Basically, Mr. Gox runs on what they call an intention wheel, which spins around and chooses a cryptocurrency. He then scampers through either a buy tunnel or a sell tunnel, which triggers purchases or sales of this or that cryptocurrency. Since he started trading digital assets last June, Mr. Gox is up nearly 30%, outperforming returns from Bitcoin, the S&P 500, and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. I think that sufficiently highlights the absurdity of the capitalist market and the impotence of bourgeois economic theory. Many more shocks, surprises, and accidents are in store for capitalism, and the next economic downturn won't be so easily blamed on the pandemic. And the response of the working class will not be a mere repeat of 2008 or 2020. A lot of experience and a lot of patience has been washed under the bridge since then. We should never forget that under capitalism, even in the best of times, periods of relative stability are merely interludes between periods of extraordinary turmoil. We don't want the suffering all of this will mean for billions of people around the world, but on the basis of these experiences, more and more people will be convinced that the only way out is to commit their lives to the fight for socialism. All of this explains the ultimate impotence of Joe Biden. 
He may stand at the head of the world's most powerful economy and of the most imposing state apparatus in history, but that's still no match for the colossal gravitational pull of world capitalism. When Biden was elected, millions breathed an understandable sigh of relief and inevitably many people had illusions in him. But tens of millions believe to this day that he stole the election and millions of others only voted for him as a way of voting against Trump. That's not much of a basis for governing. It's always impossible to know precisely how long a new president's honeymoon will last, and we should have a sense of patience and proportion as people draw conclusions on the basis of events. But I think it's fair to say that for the majority, Biden's honeymoon is already over. According to a recent Quinnipiac University poll, Biden's approval rating has dropped to 38%, down from a high of 50% in mid-February. The lowest Trump ever got while he was in office was 34% right after the events of January 6th. To be sure, many people disapprove of Biden from the right, but many of those who voted for him have already given up what little hope they once had. I mean, he can't even stop the intensifying assault on women's fundamental rights, or the further erosion of voting rights for the most marginalized and oppressed, or even treat undocumented immigrants slightly more humanely. To be sure, he hit the ground running with lofty rhetoric and grand plans. There was talk of a new, new deal, of plans to fight climate change, to rebuild the country's crumbling infrastructure, to forgive student debt, to support working parents, and so on. That sounds nice on paper, but all of this is taking place within the narrow limits of capitalism, and it's ultimately a drop in the bucket compared to what's really needed. Now, in their efforts to constrain and contain the working class, the capitalists have woven a political straitjacket and they now find themselves with little room for maneuver. From the Constitution, to the Supreme Court, to the Electoral College, to the Senate, what were once sources of stability have become sources of deep instability. As an example, take the jockeying over the infrastructure and other spending plans. Biden has called for $3.5 trillion to be spent over 10 years on the so-called Build Back Better Act. But to put that into perspective, it's estimated that by the time the interest is paid on the money borrowed to conduct the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, those wars will cost nearly double that. Or put another way, that top-end proposal of $3.5 trillion is only $350 billion per year. The U.S. spends roughly twice that amount on national defense every single year. So, as could be expected, of course, even that modest proposal is being pared down. People like Joe Manchin from low-population states like West Virginia have virtual veto power over the whole process. Now, West Virginia has a heroic working-class history, but it has a population of less than 2 million people, and it gets two senators, the same as California, which gets two senators for nearly 40 million people. Now, that kind of institutional paralysis was included in the Constitution by design when the country was founded. It was a way of making sure that the more conservative areas kept a, kept a ship of state in steady hands and in the hands of the propertied few. They actually wanted gridlock, slow movement, and plenty of time for hotheads to cool, for horses to be traded, and these days for lobbyists to lobby. But it's turned into its opposite, a farce that disgusts millions of workers. It's total hypocrisy from both parties. The Republicans voted for trillions of dollars willy-nilly under Trump, but now refuse to vote another penny. As for the Democrats, they campaigned against everything Trump, and yet reams of his executive orders remain on the books. So while we should keep an eye on the developments at the top, we shouldn't tie ourselves into knots trying to fall every thread in bourgeois politics. This is a very thin slice of politics. It's entirely bourgeois, it's far to the right, and far from the real needs of the working class and society's potential. To be sure, some Democrats want to take some pressure off the working class, but they limit themselves to the parameters of capitalism, which is the root of the problem. People like AOC and Ilhan Omar are not a real left opposition. They're liberals with a thin, verbal veneer of socialism. Ultimately, they're apologists for the system with no confidence that anything truly fundamental can change. Most of the Democrats, of course, are open and staunch defenders of capitalism because they are a capitalist party after all. And that's the main contradiction. There is no solution within that party, just as there's no solution within the system as a whole. The infighting among the Democrats is a reflection of the impasse of their system and of their party. We should have no illusions in any of this, even if we welcome any small crumb that takes the edge off the strain of life under capitalism insofar as it can help facilitate the fight for the system's total overthrow.
And just because we understand all of this doesn't mean everyone else around us does. This is a natural part of the process of learning from experience. We need to be there to patiently but persistently explain without coming across as arrogant or preachy. But we also cannot give a single millimeter on the need for an immediate break with the Democrats and the Republicans and the urgent need to build a mass socialist party of, by, and for the working class. There are no shortcuts to the Marxists becoming a serious political force. We need to stick to our guns and keep raising our profile and training cadre. But in the not too distant future, our ideas won't seem so far out there and there's already been a huge shift in our direction over the last few years. Now let's take a quick look at the labor movement, which will be an increasingly important part of our work in the next period. Officially in 2020, there were just eight major work stoppages, the third lowest number since 1947. Now, from what I could find, there was nothing yet on the BLS website for 2021, but this just doesn't give a full picture of the simmering unrest, because those statistics only include major work stoppages, including 1,000 or more workers lasting one full shift or longer. As we know, there were hundreds of smaller actions throughout 2020, many of them wildcat strikes or just walkouts or sickens by non-unionized workers. Over the last few weeks, tens of thousands of workers have gone on strike or have authorized strike action. From John Deere in the Midwest, to Kellogg's workers, to the workers of IATSE, to nurses, to engineers, coal miners, carpenters, healthcare workers, uh, hundreds of workers from New York to California, to Texas, to Ohio, to Minnesota, to Illinois, to Connecticut, have voted new strike authorizations just in the last few days. Graduate workers at Columbia, at Illinois State, at Harvard are also on the road to going out on strike. Now, in addition to higher wages and better conditions, workers, and especially those at the front lines of fighting the pandemic, are feeling burnt out and there's mounting mental health issues and PTSD. So they're demanding better staffing, more hires, and safer patient-to-worker ratios. And whether all of these strikes end up happening or not, whether or not they're defeated or whether they're fully or partially victorious, it's clear that American workers are starting to mobilize. Contrast that energy and determination with the current lot of labor leaders who hide behind Biden and the Democrats relying on the courts and Congress to pass things like the Long Shot Pro Act, which has been gathering dust since the spring. The unions have pumped millions of their members' dollars into lobbying efforts and ad campaigns after spending hundreds of millions of dollars getting Biden and other Democrats elected in 2020. There's big money, big power, and big pressure from the bourgeoisie in all of this. Keeping the workers they're supposed to represent in check while keeping things safe for the capitalists is a big job, but these leaders are not going to be able to keep control of things forever. We recently had the passing of longtime AFL-CIO president Richard Trumka. We'll see how the election of a successor plays out, but all signs point to a continuation of his essential policies and regime. It will probably take the ousting of the leaders of some of the larger unions that make up the AFL-CIO before the leadership of the AFL-CIO itself is meaningfully challenged. Opposition currents are inevitably developing in many unions, but none have yet gained the kind of momentum that could lead to a chain reaction of rebellion among the union rank and file. But similar conditions lead to similar results, and eventually we will see these kinds of developments, and new leaders, and new unions, and possibly even new kinds of unions will emerge. Once important parts of the labor movement begin to mobilize against the democratic president in power, we'll know things have reached a new level. We're not there yet, but the labor leaders can't keep making excuses for their inaction forever. We need to keep our eye on and analyze developments in the labor movement, the rise of opposition currents, the outbreak of strikes and unionization drives. We need to participate and support all of this while not losing track of our main aim in the immediate period, which is to build a much larger and stronger revolutionary Marxist organization. The shortest route to having a strong presence of Marxists in the trade unions is precisely by winning the youth, training them up in Marxist theory, and orienting them to the unions and to the working class generally. As for the left and the rise of democratic socialism in the last period, we've written extensively on different aspects of this in our press, but it's still worth making a few points. Now, we understand that for the average American, merely adopting socialists as an identifier is a major leap forward in consciousness. But we also understand that there is socialism and there is socialism. In the final analysis, the fight for the political and practical soul, if you will, of the U.S. working class will be a battle between the forces of reformism and revolution. 
Confidence in capitalism is deeply undermined, as we've seen, and it has no prospects for meaningfully regaining that confidence in the next period. So capitalism itself is doing most of the work for us. But it's pretty much a law of the class struggle that the weaker capitalism gets, the harder the reformists will fight to prop it up and keep it on life support. Now, the reformists have the upper hand today, which is understandable and natural, especially in a country like the U.S., but they can't be allowed to keep the upper hand indefinitely, or they will play an openly counter-revolutionary role and derail the future revolution. Frankly, it makes me puke to see the attempts by Jacobin and co. to rehabilitate Karl Kautsky or to claim Lenin as their own. So while remaining patient and political, we cannot give an inch on this. The need for class independence is a question of the highest principle. It's a line we can never cross or blur. This doesn't mean we shouldn't do our best to connect with those individuals who have only just discovered the idea of democratic socialism. We should differentiate those who are, quote, average socialists and reformists only because they haven't encountered revolutionary socialism from those who know full well that a revolutionary alternative exists, but who consciously reject it in favor of class collaboration. People like Bhaskar Sunkara, AOC, and Megan Day are democratic socialists only insofar as they call themselves socialists and support the Democratic Party. The only thing dirty about the so-called dirty break is its conscious class collaboration. So I don't think left or right reformist is really an accurate characterization of these people. It would be more correct to call these people liberal socialists or liberal reformists. The petty bourgeois pessimism and quote-unquote realism that oozes from so many of these people has to be combated tooth and nail. In Marx's time, and in the build-up to the Russian Revolution, you had some petty bourgeois and even bourgeois individuals who broke with their class and threw their lot in with the workers. Far from breaking with their petty bourgeois roots and fighting to free the workers from capitalism, these people want to lead the advanced workers into the putrid swamp of liberalism, and they bend over backwards to theoretically justify the chains of capitalism. Now, the U.S. Perspectives document also takes up the question of polarization, of racism, and the so-called culture wars. This is really a key topic, and understandably, it can be an emotional topic for many people, including myself. But as with everything else, we have to analyze it scientifically. Now, for years, the IMT has been developing and refining our understanding of oppression, analyzing it from a class perspective, but not in a one-sided or crude, mechanical, reductionist way. At the 2008 Congress of the U.S. Section, we produced a very solid document on the black struggle covering many of the fundamentals, and I definitely encourage you to check out our website to see that document. We've also developed analysis around the original BLM movement, including a look at the legacy of the Black Panther Party. But a lot has happened since then, and the way this question is understood is not the same as it was 10 or 15 years ago. Now, last summer, we didn't just analyze those extraordinary events. We didn't just participate in over 100 demonstrations around the country. We learned from that movement politically and organizationally. We have to continue to make it crystal clear that although racism and oppression are rooted in class society, this poison can take many, often contradictory forms. A socialist revolution can lay the material basis for eradicating racism over a generation or two, but we should never be under the illusion that the socialist revolution will magically solve all of this overnight. As Marx put it in relation to chattel slavery, labor in white skin cannot emancipate itself where the black skin is branded. This same basic principle applies in relation to oppression today. It's not first the revolution and then the fight against oppression. We have to emphasize that fighting racism and all forms of oppression will be an essential component of the broader class struggle and not merely at the moment of the revolutionary uprising itself. The entire road of struggle up to that decisive showdown will forge real class unity and cut across the mistrust built up over centuries. This is all extremely important, not simply because it's inspiring, and it is, but because the first step towards building in new areas, workplaces, neighborhoods, and layers of the working class is to develop a clear and balanced political analysis. And this applies not only to black workers and youth, but to Latinos and Latinas, American Indians, the questions of Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska Natives, and so on. And it's not just about analyzing the past, but of analyzing the present reality of racism and oppression and its effects. 
A recent study found that segregation is actually worse today than it was 30 years ago. It found that 81% of regions with more than 200,000 residents were more segregated in 2019 than they were in 1990, despite fair housing laws and policies created to promote integration. Some of the most segregated areas included Chicago, Milwaukee, and Detroit in the Midwest, and New York, northern New Jersey, and Philadelphia in the Mid-Atlantic. And of great interest as the IMT continues to build throughout the South, large metropolitan areas that saw the biggest decrease in segregation included Savannah, San Antonio, and Miami. Now, as we know, greater segregation means less access to jobs, resources, and quality of life. In fact, the authors of the study, who probably aren't Marxists, couldn't avoid drawing this conclusion. As they put it, quote, The takeaway from these findings is that race itself appears not to be the determining factor in an individual's life outcomes. Rather, the more consequential factor for life outcomes is the environment in which that individual is immersed. In other words, as Marxists have always explained, conditions determine not only consciousness, but life outcomes as well. Now, the key to the solution of this nightmare was given on the streets of hundreds of American cities last summer. As we explained in the U.S. Perspectives document, these events left an indelible imprint on the consciousness of millions, and the idea of revolution in our lifetime is not as abstract as it once was. The movement expended a lot of energy, but since none of the contradictions that produced it have been resolved, it won't take decades for another colossal head of steam to build. June 2020 was only a dress rehearsal. And that, my friends, is precisely what the ruling class is worried about. And in all of this, the youth are the future, both for humanity as a whole and for the IMT. Again, we've seen all the polls. The latest from Momentum and Axios found that among adults in Gen Z, that's people aged 18 to 24, just 42% have a positive view of capitalism and 54% have a negative view. And it's not just independents and people who tend to vote Democrat because they have no alternative. In 2019, 81% of Republicans in Gen Z had a positive view of capitalism, and that number has fallen to 66% today. A recent Gallup poll also pointed out something that bears consideration. They suggest that the definition of socialism appears to have changed from government ownership of the means of production to kinder, more generous, progressive ideas about expanding the federal government's writ. Again, that's a totally natural stage of the process of growing class and socialist consciousness, and it shows the influence of the self-styled socialist liberal reformists in massaging the meaning of socialism into something that's safe for the system as a whole. Nonetheless, the main trend is clear, especially in the context of the U.S. and its anti-socialist and anti-communist history. Linked intimately to the question of the youth is the question of climate change. The existential nature of climate change is like a matrix moment for millions and millions of young people in this country and billions of people around the world. After all, what's the point of continuing to sell your labor power and sacrificing your dreams for a system that is running everything into the ground? Yes, there's irony, cynicism, apathy, and even nihilism, but there's also burning anger, class hatred, and a growing willingness to bet everything on a better future. Capitalism is a dead end, and millions of young people in particular can feel it in their bones. The revolution may or may not be televised, but it's definitely percolating on Instagram and on TikTok, and we should be out there spreading the word on those platforms so we can connect with the most thoughtful and committed, radicalized youth. My friends, my comrades, we have to understand the stakes. Humans have dominated the planet for quite a few centuries, but I'm personally convinced that this is the century that will make or break us as a species. Capitalism is in the throes of a terminal crisis, and as we know, terminal means to the death. The socioeconomic system that currently dominates the planet simply cannot keep human society as we know it going indefinitely, unless it is replaced through the conscious revolutionary action of the working class, it can and will drag us all down with it. Either we bury capitalism or capitalism will bury us. It's as simple as that. But like thousands of IMT comrades around the world, I firmly believe that we can and will achieve socialism in our lifetime. Socialism in our lifetime is the essence of our revolutionary optimism summed up in a single slogan. Everything turns into its opposite and capitalism did that many decades ago. 
It's our task to complete the job started by the historical process and by the millions of revolutionaries around the world who preceded us. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this broad overview of the ever-changing situation in the U.S., and I really do hope that it inspired you to consider joining the IMT if you're not already a member. Big thanks as always to Laura Brown, our audiovisual producer, whose hard work behind the scenes makes these episodes possible. If you liked what you heard today but you aren't ready to join yet, you can help us bring these ideas to your family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers by sharing our website, this podcast, subscribing to our streams, and giving us a five-star rating, which will help other listeners find us. You might also consider becoming a sympathizer or making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to the print version of Socialist Revolution magazine, which is also available for digital subscriptions. You can learn more about the IMT and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Stay healthy and safe and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. Long live the World Socialist Revolution. Yo,